Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. I am joined today by uh, the creator of a staple project within Handmade Network, which is the Odin programming language. Uh, his name is Ginger Bill. Uh, hello, Ginger Bill. How are you? How are you doing today? Hello, Ryan. I'm doing well. How about yourself? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I don't know exactly when this episode is going to go up, but uh, we are both in the middle of a uh, of a lockdown here, or a partial one at least. And uh, I I I saw recently. I think it was Casey Miratori say that now everybody has to learn to live like programmers, basically. Um, <laughs> so, how how is how has that been going for you? Everything. Hopefully, you're staying healthy and everything. Yeah, I'm staying healthy, eating well, um, but it's it is t- making me a bit stir crazy. Yeah, yeah. I guess at least this is our most productive times. Um, so, or this is one of our most productive times as programmers. But um, I hope so. <laughs> Yeah. Uh so uh as we uh as as I had uh introduced you originally you're the you're the creator of the Odin programming language which is a one of the most popular projects within Handmade Network uh I presume and uh I just want to to get started here I want to ask you exactly how you define not only Odin but programming languages in general because I think that'll give us a good structure uh upon which we can sort of explore the ideas you have behind Odin and how that goes into some of your design decisions with the language. Uh, so, uh, yeah, how would you how would you sort of classify everything there? So, Odin, the programming language, is, I kind of designed it to be an alternative to C. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to kind of get rid of all the hard edges and friction from C and make it simpler, have a much better type system in it, get rid of a lot of the bugs, prone stuff in it, all the, again, trying to make everything just happier so I can have much more joy when I'm programming. programming. And also yeah. design a language for modern systems. Because C was designed for, what, with PDP-7 or something like that? PDP-7, something like that then. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of evolved over the years a bit, but it's still... It supports so many systems. It's got so many warts to it, which, again, right. you can't get rid of anymore. So, mm-hmm. I, again, I thought, okay, look, try and make a better language for myself where I've learned from using C over the years as well as many other programming languages and see what is shown to work well in them and use those new ideas. So when you're talking about like, the categorization of languages... Um, there's usually like the, the general like academic categorizations, right, like right. The imperative or the functional or the declarative or whatever word you want to use, and um, it it's kind of a different way of diff- looking at it. And if you look at the the, the again this, the textbooks one, you've got kind of like uh, declarative, right, and imperative, yeah. Imperative means you you write out here's the kind of the instructions that you do and it's kind of it's in this way declarative is you tell it this is what i want you figure out how to do it mm-hmm. so in a sense again this is a very broad thing these aren't well again i'm not defining them technically correct but let's just make it clearer mm-hmm. <laughs> one yeah. of them is kind of showing the execution flow the other one's kind of more showing the data flow and again there's you can actually have a bit of both of course and they overlap there's no hard you don't have to be a very hard distinction but they're the general ideas so one's more based around this data flow while like for instance uh, visual languages like lab view they're sometimes used right. which is like it shows data for you while more textual language usually ex- like c express the execution flow as i call it right just to clarify also for myself i've usually described just a kind of a terminology thing i've 
from what it sounds like, I've described imperative as procedural. Are those two equivalent by this? No. So procedural is a form of imperative. Okay. So there'll be other imperative ones as well, such as um, object-oriented programming is imperative as well. I see. I can remember. I'm not... Clear not. I'm not an academic in this area, but right, right. the top of my head, imperative is also. Oh, I'm trying to think of examples now. I can't think off the top of my head, but that's not the problem. It's just, it's just, it's a terminology, but it is right, more of right. um, in that regards. Imperative brain. I'm put on the spot now. <laughs> Other examples, imperative. That's fine. Imperative procedure and object oriented usually are the main two categories that I can think of. Yeah, here. yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, that was, yeah. Interesting. So, and when you think of Odin within that space, do you think of it as this is a tool that I'm using to basically express the thing that I would like the computer, the the, the tasks that I would like the computer to perform? Um, I see it like, do you see it as a tool or something like maybe more abstract than that? Um, oh, no, I, I, I plainly see it as a tool. Okay. Um, for me, the entire objective of programming mm-hmm. is is a tool to solve problems that I have. Yes. <laughs> that is literally all I think about. And it may sound different. Like, a program, a, 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 the fundamental thing, a program is something that transforms data yes. into other forms of data. That's it. That's the entirety of a program. That's all it is and all it ought to be, in my opinion. Yeah. Something that transforms data into other forms of data. And if you understand that, a lot of the magic disappears. Yeah. And it's kind of like, okay, get down to it. What do we actually need to solve? Right. Um, and again, this may sound like a very obvious thing to many people. Like, well, of course, of course it is. But like, most people don't get taught that. Yeah. I, I clearly get see this. They do not get taught that is what a program is. Yes. And that's what a program does. So it's kind of a little bit like, again, this is kind of about the whole handmade um, mm-hmm. network and handmade philosophy in general. Is kind of, kind of, this is what we are doing. <laughs> <It's>, right. <laughs> So one thing that I've noticed with just by looking, I I have never extensively done the dive into Odin as as many people have, but um, something that I've noticed and I've talked with you a little bit about before on was the the syntax choices, which I guess ties into uh, cleaning up some of the rough edges on C, um, because in Odin you've done uh, it seems like you've done a lot of thinking with. Okay, how do we make how do we make the syntax very consistent uh, in terms of like these categories of things? Like for example, if you define a struct versus a procedure, it looks very similar um, as opposed to something like a variable. Like there's a slight syntax change, but it's it's there, these the syntax seems to sort of map to these broad categories of things. And from what it sounds like, you have done that uh, basically to just you know have a clean interface to to commanding this tool. And to generally, uh, I guess, clean up the specification of code as data. Yeah, well, um, this is... I wrote an article about this about two years ago now, I remember. I called Mm -hmm. it the On the Aesthetics of Syntax of Declarations. I'm just trying to make it sound like an old-fashioned philosophy book. Right. It's one of those things where I was was kind of just... uh, As I was designing Odin, originally the style I had for declarations was very Pascal-like. Which I've called qualifier focus, which means you had like a keyword and then the name, then the expression. So like var x equals one, two, three, or right. const x equals true, or um, type um, foo equal, uh, equals whatever. So it has this mm-hmm. kind of keyword, name, expression, keyword, name, expression, this kind of pattern. And that's mm-hmm. from the Pascal family. It's very simple to pass, and it clearly tells you 
what the type of declaration is as you are seeing it. Um, yeah. The other common one is like type focused, which I this is my terminology, of course, which mm -hmm. is like what C does. You have the type, the name, and then the expression. C is a little bit weird, actually, because C's declarations are also to match their usage. So like an int... Um, an int star x uh, right. square bracket, etc. That is actually, it says, oh, that's how you'd also use it. So that's why dereferencing is matching the type. Yeah. It's a bit weirder. And then the other one which I did was in Odin, which is name focused, um, which is where you have the name, then the type, and then the expression. So it's a bit, they all seem like, oh, you mix them around. But no, actually, they've all kind of got different advantages and they've all got com different issues as well. Um, the, the, again, in my article, I'm only just talking about his old issues regarding mm -hmm. these approaches. Yeah. And you've just got to comp take a compromise of which one you prefer. Sometimes I wish I preferred taking the type focus, which is like the, the, the qualify focus, I mean, like with the prefixes. But then sometimes I think, no, actually, the name focus feels a lot better. So there's been a lot of um, experimentation, like hell of a lot, a few years actually, just figuring mm -hmm. out, okay, what feels better, what is clearer to use, yeah, and what works. Because a lot of this, you, you cannot know a priori. You don't know what it is until you actually tr test it out. Yes. Like, just experiment. Right. Use use the language that you are giving to other people to use, right? Yeah. That's So that's pretty interesting because code, as, as you, you know, you're talking about experimentation uh, with different syntax choices and everything. Um, in a sense, that's kind of presentation of data to the programmer, right? Um, kind of exactly, it is. Because code is data too. Um, maybe we don't think of it as it data, is. but and that, that's, that's pretty interesting. So, so you've kind of gone through and said, okay, well, how, how do I want to present this? What provides the most benefits uh, with respect to like the general tasks that people are going to be doing with this language kind of? Yes. Yeah, okay. Again, one of the main things about declarations is that we as humans like to name things it's easier right. to think about. Yes. It uh, may sound, again, sounds obvious, but no, that's, we like naming things because we like to refer to things, something by a name. Yeah. Um, like any concepts, that's why we use word. That's why we have language. Right. And we have these nouns in our language. Um, so again, declarations, this is the first thing I notice when most people like new to come to Odin, they think, oh, the syntax is very weird. I'm like, <laughs> actually, if you go down to it, only the declaration syntax is weird. The rest of it, you'll feel at home, it'll look like Another, like, most languages you've used and you won't even notice it. Yeah. But it's just that declaration syntax. People think, oh, it's weird. It's like, but that's because we're so used to thinking, oh, that's different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like besides declarations of things, it seems that most of the syntax seems with, with I guess, with the exception of a few symbols, like for pointers, they're, I think they're different. Uh, but yeah, that aside, um, it looks a lot like C. Uh, it, like, Semantically, it's it's very similar, um, and then syntactically, it's uh, there are like a few little changes, and I think the most jarring one is probably the declarations. Yes, um, a lot of it is also if you're coming from C, you will notice oh you got if statements, for loops, oh you got switch statements. So all these seem normal and they look very similar to what they are in C. Yeah, there's some minor changes here and there, but in general. Um, it, it, it will feel the same when you use it. And that's kind of one of the things I've been trying to do is make the language feel good, yeah. which is 
clearly not very um, what's the best way of putting this scientific, <laughs> um, but it's just but it is. It's like you're finding what humans feel like, and you've just been tailoring. Okay, people do. Oh, they keep doing these common mistakes. So you need to tweak it a little bit here. And oh, this doesn't feel right when you're using it. So you've yeah. got to tweak a little bit more. Like one of the things that in Odin that took a hell of a long time, it took me about a year to actually get working correctly, mm-hmm. was the library system. Okay. Now, uh, yeah, so it was, I was trying to go through different ways of approaching it and I experimented like mad. And the mm. short answer of it is I, none of the approaches I like. I just stuck <laughs> with one and it was just the best compromise Okay. at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, which is technically the modular approach, which is an older language. Um, Go does something similar, similar as well. Uh, but it was literally the, it's the best compromise out there where you treat the directory as a library scope and every file that's yeah. in there is under the same pa- like package scope. And so it can all see within each other. It was, again, it has issues, but it, it's the best compromise, in my opinion. The other approach would have been the Python approach, where every file is a scope. Yeah. But then I've used Python hell of a lot, and I still use it most, every, pretty much every day for science and stuff. Okay. Um, it's a pain in the arse how people use it, and it just, people <laughs> just, you, uh, they, they import everything into, glo- into the file scope. You don't know where things come from. Mm. It, it's so the organization's all over the place. And it's, it's horrible to maintain. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that seems interesting because uh, most people would probably organize their file, like related sort of like libraries and, and this kind of thing mm. within folders anyways. So maybe that just maps yeah. cleanly to usage. Yeah, it seems to be that kind of, seems to be the case. A lot of people who still come into the trying to, oh, have one one file equals one library. And then they try and, oh, we've got one file in our directory and we've got loads of directories. And it's like, no, no, so just be, don't be afraid to have one big, a directory with loads of files in it. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. that is much more natural to have mm-hmm. loads of data, loads of literally loads of code together. But uh, there's some stuff like that, and it's just been getting things to feel right. Yeah. It's been this again. The constant system in Odin was another one, like constant value system. Mm-hmm. People, um, and I, actually, that's tangent. I, I'll just go back a bit a second. So okay. in Odin, <laughs> um, Odin's a strongly typed language. Yes. I'll explain. So, but it's also a very distinct typed language hmm, okay so that means there's no like implicit conversions going on at all right yeah um so this may like if you're coming from c you're used to having things like automatically convert like for instance floats go to doubles automatically or yeah um, smaller ints go to a, a normal int type or they can automatically convert and hmm. when you're used to this in c you think this is quite natural and it's like you couldn't think of anything different it's like course this is what you want to because what you having to do loads of casts otherwise if you had it it'd be more distinct mm-hmm. um but what i've tried to do is odin is very distinct in fact you can define your own new like like a type def in c i have you i could say you can either do an alias or you can make it distinct so you can have my int um colon colon distinct int okay then these are now two distinct into two different types even though they're underlyingly the same they're completely different interesting and and as the the alias approach would just be replace that keyword distinctly yeah, with yeah, alias. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Pretty much that. Um, it's just it's an alias, so it's in that regards. But the other one's distinct. Mm-hmm. Now people again would say, well, "Wouldn't this mean you have to do loads of casts?" And this is, no, I've made I've made it work hell of a lot just to make it feel right that so you don't even need to do casts most of the time. Yeah. And it's took a lot of work to do that, and it's <laughs> again it's this constant value system is quite magic in that regard. Like numbers just work. It's the mm. best way of putting it. You put some 
and it's just it, it, it again it's something like that it's like you wouldn't have known what it is when you first started out yeah you had to do a hell of a lot more explanation i kind of know what i needed but experiment 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 you don't know right until you've tried yeah that's a very bottom-up approach to design um like it's very it's very difficult if not impossible to predict what people will want or what will be useful yeah so just go and discover it yeah because again this originally this was meant to be just something for myself this okay. was not going to be used by anyone else and then other people said oh could i give it a go and i went yeah sure and then like and then like oh <laughs> people want to use this and like, i have to start thinking about other people <laughs> right, right. and that's kind of how it went on it wasn't really planned none of it was planned wow but, yeah. okay yeah uh, I just got fed up with my own tools. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's interesting. So it sounds like numbers, for example, are actually typeless in a sense. Like if you use a, no- a yes. numeric literal, they just don't have a type until yeah. you store them somewhere. Yeah, exactly. This is in the system. I call them the untyped types. <laughs> okay. It's, I, I couldn't think of a better name. That's what I came up with. <laughs> sounds very uh, philosophical. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. It was just the way it get it feeling right um because for instance if you have the number literal one well this is just the number one it should work with most any type that can take one yeah can't it so it has yeah. basically has the untyped integer is its type now if you had a literal that said 1.0 that you'd think oh, okay that's an untyped float mm-hmm. but it's still got the value of one so it should work on any integer type so it's this those little things like that but you may not even realize it but it just again yeah. getting it feeling correct you don't even notice it's there. That's the whole kind of point. You don't want your tools to get in the way. So it's it's kind of like, it sounds like these, these untyped types are sort of, <clears throat> they almost sound like groups of types to me. Um, and core and mappings from those groups of types to types of literals is that accurate or kind of okay. it is more like hey this is a type it's not being been uh, well defined yet okay but we've just got a value for it and we know what it can be represented as and then when we're trying to assign it to another value which has got a discrete type um, we check to see if it is representable by hmm. that type yeah so it has a lot of nice extra strong safety checks in there as well um, but again there's many different things like that and it's it, again it's this trying to feel right and you're trying to get the tools to work for people that use them and it's yeah. and again i'm not going to a rant but stuff like c plus <laughs> plus is just people adding more and more stuff on because i want this new feature i want this new feature none of it's coherent because it's designed by a, com- co- a committee yeah and it's n- they don't really care about it being a good tool they just want Literally, as uh, not even a Swiss Army knife. This is something mutated. And <laughs> it needs to be shot at this point. But um, yeah, that's, that's just again not going down that road at the moment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to go back to the library system, actually. Um, yes. Because one thing that's interesting about C, and that a lot of people criticize, uh, including myself, is that C doesn't really define what it means for a program to be a program. Or like some buildable unit to be a buildable unit. It's basically just pass me a stream of characters and I'll I'll parse them this way, sort of thing. Yeah, um, which made sense when C was first made. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, I didn't have much memory. You didn't have much processing time. So you were just trying to be able to, if you can read from top to bottom yeah. and not stop, then it worked. Because this is when, if you ever, if anyone's made a C uh, pass before. You'll notice you'll need a symbol table yes. when you pass. Yeah. Because 
Um, you don't know if this declaration, or is it a type, or is it a value, or just a normal name? And you have to search your symbol table as you pass, so it's very context-specific. Right. So it gets a little bit annoying. But the reason why C did this is because then you can read it from top to bottom in one go, in one pass. So C is a one-pass compiler. And you, most compilers probably don't do that anymore, but you literally you can do that for C. Yeah. Um, and there's many of those weird oddities because of that. But again, nowadays we don't need it for any performance reason. Modern computers, you can just dump the entire like file into memory right. and just read yeah. it like yourself. You don't have to piecemeal it as you go along. Yeah. And you can do multiple passes. That's not slow anymore. We've got loads enough memory. We can store it. Again, it's something that's not an issue now. Right. So just don't worry about those issues of the past. Yeah, that's. I think there's an interesting piece of wisdom in there, maybe, which is that uh, kind of everything we do is defined by hardware to one degree or another. Um, even yes. if we use these higher level tools, they still kind of, their limits about what they can do, at, at the very least, are defined by the hardware that they're being run on. So nothing is sort of set in stone in this field, or at least hasn't been no. historically, which is, which is pretty interesting. Well, again, your hardware is your tool. Yeah. And it's your software is a tool that runs on this hardware, which is part of your problem if you're trying to solve. Right. You can't ignore your machine. You can like to, and you can go like into the platonic realm of all the different problems. And, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you've got a you've got a machine here that does certain things. Yep. Yeah. And you, it's usually useful to know how a machine works. Like, yeah, I can drive yeah. a car, and you, I don't really need to know exactly anything how a car works. I just need to know. Look, put my right foot on the accelerator. There's left clutch on the on left on the clutch. I've got wheel in front of me yes and then i can go it works right and that's how many people drive a car and they yeah. don't but they don't always need to but if you're trying to solve a problem or try to use that car for other purposes well it's probably damn useful you know how that car works yeah and i guess there's there's also like multiple layers here too like i could imagine somebody who doesn't know much about an engine for example driving a car maybe that should be what we think of like general consumer users as but as exactly. programmers, that almost seems like a little scary to me. <laughs> yeah, it's like if as, as a programmer, um, you're effectively being the mechanic. Not that's a, that's a really poor analogy. I know it is, but yeah. essentially you're maybe designing the car or designing the components in the car. Right. So if you're going to hook things together, you kind of want to know how the things work that you're hooking up to. Yeah. And it's maybe that's all you need to know. But usually my rule of thumb. I've always tried to learn a level below that I actually need. So, like every, I say I'm at my day job as a physicist, I know down to quantum field theory, but I use only need quantum mechanics or I only just need basic, like, nano stuff. I don't actually, even though I know below it, I don't actually need it Yeah. for my day job. I just, it helps because then you go, okay, now I know I can go down to lower level if I can. If I cannot, don't know that level, I cannot go down to it. So it's a, in that sense, it's my rule of thumb. Okay, try and learn the lower level if you can. Right. <laughs> Even if you don't use it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, Odin is interesting there because it it's a new language designed for modern hardware, um, and yet it seems to have stuck with... I mean, as you said, it's a replacement. You, you designed it to be a replacement for C, so... Yes. It's, it, it seems to have stuck with a lot of the old philosophies about C. Like, we're not going to you know, shoot off into heaven or, or anything. Uh, we're yeah, going yeah. to stick with this kind of like middle ground between, you know, we can build these abstractions that are useful, but ultimately we see how they map to the 
to the ground, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's probably, again, how, my, how just I view the world in general, but it, it's for me is that these ideas are hard and well proven. They work. Yeah. And we know they work and we can see how they, and I know they work for me, they work for others, you have, it can be very productive in it. Mm-hmm. That's good enough. So like, why would you just chuck it out if you know it works? Right, yeah. It's like saying, okay, I've got a spanner or a wrench or whatever you want to call it in America. And it, I know it works, <laughs> does the job, but no, 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 I'm coming along. I've got a better tool. I've got a pair of pliers. You know, I've got a spanner. It'll work just as good. It's yeah. better, in fact, for saw. But no, pliers will do the job. I'm like, oh, just... So it's, it's yeah. kind of the... It works. And the thing is, these ideas are kind of, like, for me imperative procedural programming is kind of how i think as well like about a problem like if this then do that else do this yes oh do this operation oh um for this for a certain amount condition keep doing this these operations yeah like because at the end of the day that's kind of how a machine works your machine has instructions uh, that can do like let's say adds it does subtracts multiplies it does branching it says you can do a jump conditional checking it, it does these basic operations and that's kind of it's, the procedural approach is just kind of a little bit of, more on top of that it kind of structures that in a more neater way that the way that we think generally in logic this right. very um, i'm trying to think of a uh, normal word but just this general like basic structured way of thinking like oh this 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 and this and it's in order right the other f- people where they think it's like functional program languages, they think of it very mathematical wise. They have got expressions everywhere mm-hmm. and like, oh, this is just a pure expression of everything. It's pure mathematics. That's how mathematics is. It's just you could do the entire thing as one giant equation if you wanted to. Right. But and, and that is one way of thinking about a problem. That is not an invalid way. If yes. it solves the problem, it works. But a lot of the time, that's not how you work. Like I don't when I cook, I do it step by step. I don't do it as one giant flowing thing. That's not how I work. Yeah. Uh, but again, some people probably do. Again, this is why I'm not saying... Yeah. This is probably where I'm weird. Use the tools that work for you. Yeah, I mean, that's... The, the cooking analogy is interesting. I mean, I'm no... I'm no Gordon Ramsay, um, but uh, I don't know what he does, for example. But I, I certainly... Some people might, like, orchestrate the timing just right so that they can just, like, walk through the kitchen and do everything in, like, one pass... But yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty interesting that there is this sort of linear flow to like what you are kind of like just step by step follow the instructions basically. Yeah, it's kind of how we think though. We we can have multiple thoughts at once, but they're all linear. Yeah, like I, I and I don't. Again, this sounds obvious to most people, or things like what you talked about. Of course, it is. But I mean, like, this is one thing that struggles when you're doing like multi-threading on a computer, right? Because when you're learning it, at least, it's very. It's, it's it's non-deterministic usually and it's all over the place and it's like you have to use these other models which yeah. pretty much make them split them into linear kind of patterns we can't do this abstract yeah. thing in a heads you most no some key people can of course i'm not going to say i struggle at it I, I can't really do it so i try and just keep to certain models of how to do like multi-threading and different things like, oh i've got a queue which is kind of linear right and then you just add work to it or you do and then you've got all the queues you can read queues everywhere pretty much multi-threading right but yeah. um but it's kind of this i don't know it's just how people work and you just kind of kind of make tools for people yeah yeah that's interesting 
And multi-threading is an interesting thing there because um, one of the one of the things that C never once pretty much had to deal with, I guess, near its conception was uh, was kind of dealing with the the problem of threading and how to even develop language features for it. Um, I'm curious to know, like, is there are there things in Odin where you have explicitly attacked that problem and been like, here is some formalized thing within the language that makes threading easier than it would have been otherwise. The answer to that is technically no. Okay. But I have been I've had considered this like mad, and yeah. the issue is it's one of those things where if you were to add it into a language, you are effectively um, that's the best way of putting it. You are effectively forcing one model on a person. Yeah, yeah. And there are loads of different models to do with uh, multi-threading. I'm just going to use multi-threading as a general term. Yeah. Because you could do parallel parallelism or um, concurrency, and there's all the different type of models in there, like um, CSP, which is what Go uses, which is a communications a sequential programming. Yeah. You could also use. Um, yeah, again, it's just, we should use. I'm trying to think of all the different models, but there's literally loads of them. And if you pick one, then people say, "Oh, well, can I do another way?" And it's like that. But a lot of other models, if you were going to make them feel correct, is they try and they're very in an abstract way, and they usually try and be very generalized. Which means, for like low-level programming language like Odin, um, a lot of these models try and abstract away memory management as well, right? Because it makes it feel better. But Odin, one of the main goals I wanted was specifically um, to have uh, custom allocators built into language, like the idea of custom allocations everywhere. Right. Because you want a huge control of memory allocations, memory layout, yeah. memory access and stuff like that. And as soon as you add that new concept, it becomes a little bit harder to actually think, okay, which is the right way to do threading? Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you add threading into a language you also mean you limit the amount of platforms you do support because embedded platforms usually only have one core to it, one thread. Right. So if you added this concept of thread to a platform that doesn't have it, well, good luck. It has no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Right. So that yeah. means you've now got to support some random, um, sw- I can't think of the technical term for it, but like switching in and out different parts to uh, right. mimic threading like in Python does because everything technically everything in Python is single-threaded. Right, yeah. So you have to do this time slicing, that's the word they use in Python. Right. It gets all complicated, which maybe you maybe want that as well, but it's, it's this, it's hard to know what you want. You can, I make things easier for the programmer, of course. Yeah. But again, I just haven't decided on a model and it's just, again, I'm not against it. If people suggest me ideas, please do. Right. But it's one of those where I, I Programming uh, multi-threaded stuff and putting stuff into the language, it can be difficult to stay. Yeah. And sometimes if you've got a decent standard library, really decent standard library, it's not an issue. Now, so this is one point I wanted to kind of, you know, I don't forget to make, is when using a language, people, this is an interesting thing I've noticed when I was designing stuff, is people don't separate the language from the core library. Hmm, yeah. And... (sighs) When, like, especially I know many non-programmers who do a bit of coding, like use Python. Yeah. They think Python is Python and NumPy and SciPy. They do not think they are separate from the language. That is Python to them. Yeah. So this is when, like, for me, with, like, the uh, multi-threading stuff, if I have a very decent 
library set which has all of these things in, which is just like everything in the kitchen sink, people will think that's just part of the library language and it's no problem. Yeah. And I, if, if I can get to that point and it is good, success in my opinion. Um, right. Because that's kind of hit the goal. But Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up uh, allocators just being kind of a more formal concept within Odin. Um, because I guess yes, when I think of multi-threading, and I'm not an extraordinarily good multi-threaded programmer by any stretch of the imagination, but when I think of it at least, um, I think of one of the primary problems being the synchronization of access to shared, uh, basically, memory. Yes. So if you formalize, it sounds like there is something that actually is better about Odin in that sense, because if you formalize allocators, you kind of bring that concern to the programmer's head Um so you can be yes. like, I have this queue that's reserved for this thread or something, and it's just this big arena allocator that I just push onto, and th- it's this thread, uh, it's it's this threads and this threads only, so no other threads have to worry about it. And that generally, I would think, results in much cleaner kind of, like much much cleaner kinds of multi-threaded programming. Well, yeah, that's kind of how I do it in C anyway. So yeah. I just kind of used what I weren't, I literally used in C and extended it to Odin. It's so because it worked that way. Right. And um, it, it was just, it's very difficult. To, again, hard problems are hard at the end of the day. It's, it's <laughs> kind of a tautology, I know. But um, the, but it's, again, you sometimes you want, I kind of like to think locally about problems. Always have done as I am a very localist kind of thinking person. Right. So I think, okay, this kind of subsystem itself has its own memory. Okay, we have its, you can give it, allocate a big chunk of memory for it or whatever. And then it can deal with itself and you can have sub-allocators and hi- different hierarchies allocators what goes on and they can deal what, with what they need. And then you just kind of segregate it. And then when if you're talking to different things, these different subsystems, they'll send out messages and again, or you send out handles. And these handles themselves are controlled by those subsystems. So the, you're not really handling any memory across it so you kind of keep the allocations very separate right in like the object oriented mind it's like the object owns the um the the memory and stuff and has control over it and and people have a tendency unfortunately to link allocations with lifetimes yes and link it with the object itself when technically those three things those are three separate concepts entirely um yeah this, this is one of the reasons why i'm not a big fan of rust is because it does have a tendency to merge those concepts hmm. yeah um, that's, that's interesting and, i hate the word ownership but ownership which is technically um responsibility dependency is the best way right. of putting it not ownership the term's wrong um the other one is the lifetimes as well and they, but they again they, they kind of couple them together even though they are separate they tend to be coupled even though in real life you don't usually want that right again i probably going all over the dotted place here at the moment but uh, no it's 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 great yeah. yeah yeah you actually have a pretty good you have a pretty good article on on allocators in terms of yeah reasoning about lifetimes and and uh uh life what's the two lifetimes and sizes specifically and they form this kind of quadrant yes. of different allocators yeah it's the way kind of way i think in my head is because again i have this little quadrant and it's one of the i have little mini article series i need to finish it off one day i've still got half of the stuff unpublished and mostly written so i should just post them online anyway yeah uh, but i have this little quadrant as we end it's about it's you have size known and size unknown mm-hmm. lifetime known and lifetime unknown not most of the time i should say it's about 95 percent of the time for any general problem you know the size of the allocation and its lifetime so you know a hell of a lot about the data right 
sometimes you may not know the size, but you, you mo usually definitely know the lifetime. Like sometimes it may be a growing array, maybe like doing a compiler, and you don't really know how much files are going to do into memory. But you know the lifetime of the program. Like these files are going to live till the end, till yeah. they die. Yeah. Um, sometimes you know the size, but you don't know how long it's going to last. That is usually a very good answer for something like um, reference counting of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not necessarily memory-based like reference counting, but again, reference counting is when it's dead. It doesn't mean it has to be freed straight away. You can just the system that does it as always it's dead. Let's just clean it up in a bit. So it's kind of like a right. memory management there, or memory of garbage collection. And then the very, very rare case you do not know the size nor the lifetime. Um, that sometimes the the best solution for that is garbage collection, hmm. but that is you if you're getting into that case. You've got a lot of other issues, is my answer to that. And it seems like if you keep... Because I, I definitely have had circumstances in which I don't know the lifetime and I don't know the size, but it's usually yeah, very but, constrained. Like, it's very much like I could just do... If I were in C, using the CRT, for example, I would just... Maybe I would call malloc and free, but it'd be very constrained and simple, and it would be easy to understand or... Or know when it's incorrect, I guess. Yeah, and again, when I say you know the size, I don't mean exactly know the size. I just mean like you know a range. You right. Know, you know it's going to be more than a megabyte, but you know it's not going to be as big as a gigabyte. Right. Or something like that. But you know you know the kind of the range it should be in. Sometimes you really don't know the range. Yeah, yeah. And you sometimes you really don't know how long it's going to live for, that, if you think of it in that sense. Again, these are just analogies. They aren't, makes no sense to call it lifetime because they're not alive. But again, it's this... When does it get um, created and destroyed? In a sense, right? In that sense, yeah. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's again, again complicated problems. But you can have you can split them in different ways. You can have it in size things and also lifetimes. And then one thing in my head I usually do is I split them into like generations of lifetimes. Hmm. Okay. The way I think it's okay. Is this memory ever permanent? Is it like never freed and it only freed until the end of the program? So it persists for the entire life of the program. Yeah. You can go to the next kind of generation below. It's like a cycle-based lifetime. So if you've got a graphical application, the natural like cycle is usually the frame and usually clear once per frame sometimes. Right. Again, these are not hard things. They, they blur in between, of course. Yeah. And then they usually have like scratch or temporary allocations, which are so short we lived. You just want a quick memory and, and allocate and forget about it, really. Yeah. And so usually this is very useful when I want to generate a massive string like a temporary formatted string and then print it to a log file or something. Right. But I don't yeah. really want to care about freeing it. I just want it out there and be done. Yeah. But these different type of allocation strategies, most people wouldn't even be thinking about this. And yeah. But it's like, okay, I'm actually trying to think about, okay, how am I dealing with this? And I try to, I try myself to do this, get into the habit. I'm trying to think, okay, at every level I try and think like this. And it, it usually makes me more productive which is weird to state because most people think, oh, you've got more to think about. It makes you less productive. And actually, no, I'm, right. I'm actually just more in the problem. Yeah. That works for me, at least. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, I think I think it works for me as well. Um, I've kind of noticed the, sa the same kind of thinking um, in in myself. And I, so I'm curious if you, do you formalize these kinds of different allocator concepts within the language themselves? Or do you just spec out this is what an allocator should look like, and then people it's can It's more of a out. spec. This is an allocator, which is in, gotcha. in Odin, and again, what I use in C, is just, it's a struct, structure, which has a function value and a data pointer. That's it. Okay. It's very simple. Nothing special about it. Um, right. It has basic, has, again, the, the 
the procedure value has um, like inputs you take, so it's all well defined. The data pointer is just a raw pointer, a raw putter I call an Odin, which is a void star in C. Okay. Um, effectively, that's that's it. And I wanted to keep it small and concise so you could pass it around like and copy it dead easily. So yep. two pointers wide. Um, and also it means you don't have to worry about many other things. It's just a very simple thing. Yes, the language doesn't know much about it because it is just dumb right. today. Yeah. Um, but the language couldn't know much about it anyway. And this is, you could probably give hints. You could make a language and give it loads of hints about all oh, these are type of allocators and stuff. Yeah. But even then, it's again, it's it's, it's a, it is a trade off at the end of the day. Like, yes, you could make a language, loads of different hints, tell you how allocators and all these different lifetimes and allocation strategies. But you'd be writing that all the time, right? It, so I've just decided, like, look, let the user decide all this, let them handle it. It may not have been the best decision, but I, I've stuck with it. Yeah, and it's been working well for me. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Uh, sounds like there are some interesting design decisions in there of. of Kind of when when are you assuming too much about the user's case? Um, which yeah, battle testing it sounds like a pretty good way to do that. Yeah, um, it's just there's certain things like that, and it's again, it's a lovely design problem, isn't it? It's not just yeah. designing it for one particular thing. You're kind of making a t- general tool, mm-hmm. and that means you've now got to kind of cater for the general person. Right. Like there are features in the language which are very kind of specific for a certain t- tool set. Yes. Um, now, for instance, Odin supports array programming. Um, so for people who don't understand what that is, effectively you work on arrays, like you can add arrays together and they'll work element-wise yeah. and create another array. So this is very useful if you're doing a lot of mathematics. Um, and it, again, it makes it feel nice. And this is kind of when I was using, like if you're using Python, like NumPy or MATLAB or many other languages with array programming in, if you're doing a lot of mathematics, you want to do this at the time. And sometimes it because you're working on multiple things at once. Um, but also array programming, a lot of the time, if you're doing it in a certain way, can map directly to like the SIMD instructions on a machine. Hmm. Yeah. So it's actually, machines work in this way as well. So you're not just, they, we are probably so used to dealing pieces of individual data at a time. Right. But machines love dealing with loads of things at once. And right. Very similar things at once. Yeah. So make the language work that way and again it's one of those things like okay make the language work this way and deal that way as well but again it's, it's and that's a very specific thing because most people probably won't be using it but many people will be right yeah that's that's pretty interesting um so another one kind of interesting thing that i wanted to talk about kind of tangentially related actually is that yes um the uh there's this concept of uh of metaprogramming obviously and i think the yes the approach that you have taken with odin of sort of like this ground up sort of approach leads to a very different style of metaprogramming than like for example that within c++ which is yes thinking of this d- top-down design make this elegant metaprogramming type sort of thing whereas in odin you're like i'm just going to make the parser from this is my understanding of it i'm just going to make the parser part of the standard library You'd parse whatever yeah. you want, you know, go go nuts, basically. Um, yeah, so to make it clear what people metaprogram is, metaprogramming is treating your code as data at the end of the day. Right. That's what the meta bit means. You're programming on your program. Um, but the thing is, I find the term metaprogramming a little bit overloaded. Okay. It means so many different things. Yeah. And so many different things to so many different people. Um, like, there's, you can split it up to... 
simplest one is compile time execution. You can run a piece of code that's the same language at compile time. Right. That's one example of metaprogramming. Another one is just basic introspection. Like you introspect your code either at runtime or compile time. Right. Like this is like runtime type information as such or other finding other properties and such on a type or a value. Another example is literally um, reading the AST itself and modifying it. Right. That's another yeah. form of metaprogramming. Another form of metaprogramming could be reading the entire code and outputting more code, like literally being a jet code generator. Yeah. And these are all kind of interrelated, but they're all quite separate mm-hmm. as well. Um, so for Odin, I'll split the first one. Odin doesn't have any, it doesn't really have any compiled time execution at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this was actually a main design decision because to uh, to allow it in the way that I would want, I effectively I would have to have an interpreter in the compiler. Right. Yeah. And that is actually a huge dependency and also <laughs> complicates the language up quite a bit, hmm. which, again, it's a design decision. You could add one in if you wanted to and you'd be fine. I've personally... I can see the benefits of using it because sometimes it's like, oh, great, I want to call this function to generate a table with all these datas in and it just does it compile time. Great. Right. But then sometimes I think, it only needs to be generated that once. I could just generate a program now to make it and then just import it and it's done once. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you need it more generalized. Yeah. Um, the introspection is already there in Odin. Um, so type introspection is built into language at runtime. So yeah. this, the main reason I added this was so I could get like a type safe, runtime type safe printf. And not just that, but having that has made opened up many opportunities to do so many cool things. Like I can have like a debug interface. I can drag, a, like let's say, here's, use this value, click on the value I want. And it pops up all the properties of the value, all the values in real time, see what's going on. I can edit it and everything in real time. Right. And that's more powerful than most virtually all debuggers out there. Yeah. And I can easily make that in my language or any other language actually that's got runtime information like that. Yeah. Like, very quickly. And it's um, quite interesting to see many, not many people take advantage of that in other languages. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because when I, I guess I'll, I'll say this sort of loosely, but generally when I talk to people, I guess outside of the handmade circles, uh, yes. The word metaprogramming seems to kind of just refer to basically like if, if they're maybe a C++ programmer, they think of like templates, for example. Yes. Or macros they'll think of. Macros, or right. something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's something where they think of cogeneration or um, generics they think of is another way. So it's those two yes. things together, generics and cogeneration. Yeah. But if you came from C++, most people may not even realize that C++ does have like a runtime type information system in it. Right. It's absolutely dreadful, and <laughs> I disable it and never use it. Yes. But it does technically exist. It doesn't do what you want. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of there. Right. Like, usually I just want to look up table of like, okay, here's a data type. It has these offsets, these parameters, these types. Like, that's kind of what I want. Just kind of what the compiler has stored, and I just want it in my compiler, computer. Right. Now, the last bit about metaprogramming is... What's it called? Is the um, AST or the abstract syntax syntax tree for people not in the know? Um, introspection and modification. So right. a lot of people will want to just read their code, and then you okay intercept like the, uh, the, the compiler and modify the AST. Like you may insert new instructions, like you may add insert some profilers, right? Or you may actually modify code as it's going along, or Oh, you've noticed you'll analyze it. For instance, you could analyze the AST and say, okay, 
we need to assert to a certain standard or such. Yes. Like, there's endless possibilities when you do this. The thing, the plan I had for Odin, and I came up with this, I'm going to, I'm going to probably start working on this in the next few months. Okay. Is the idea was have the Odin compiler, mostly the front end at least, I can, I can get the front end, not the back end into Odin. Yeah. The front end as in the core library. Right. This would then mean you can just import the library, cut Odin as, as a library, mm-hmm. and deal with how you want to do it. Um, literally, because when people ask what they want to do metaprogramming is, you can't, I can't really please people. <laughs> you can't please everyone with it. And I, I mean this seriously. Like, yeah. they all, everyone wants slightly different things. I'm like, okay, here's the tool. Here's just literally as a compiler in the library, import it, <laughs> do what the hell you want. <laughs> because you'll want completely different build systems. You'll want it in completely different stages. You'll want different right. ways of approaching it. Yeah. And this is, so you theoretically could do it all at, um, in one stage. So you could run your com- code in the compiler interpreted which will then modify the AST and do this. This is the same with like Jonathan Blow's language, JI. Yes. The way he does it. Now, my main issue with that is that third-party libraries can't take advantage of that. Hmm. Yeah. They, they physically cannot. And, and, and what I mean by that is the main interception loop is kind of handled by the, the person calling the main program and they do all the stuff. Right. So, yes, you've got it all in one compiler stage, but it's not really made it any easier. Hmm. Okay. So I'm personally still of the view, again, if people want to change my mind, please do, but <laughs> like, I'm still like, I don't mind the two stages. Like, okay, I have a kind of like a pre-pass where it passes right. the compiler and I do all my stuff in it and then I output the, not necessarily a new file, but literally it could just be the stream of the AST and put it to the back end. So I actually make a program, which is the metaprogrammer, which is technically just modifying the Odin compiler. So I'm thinking of it oh, in wow. that sort of sense. Okay. So you literally modify the compiler itself is what I'm thinking of, not just intercept the compiler. You write your, you modify it as you go along. So if somebody if somebody takes they they clone Odin from from GitHub, I think is where yeah, yeah. it would be, and they they build it, they'll have like an Odin.exe or whatever, and they can yes. call that, and that'll have a default front end. But basically, what you're saying is like, yes. no, if you want to replace the front end, here's how you do it. Uh, and then yep. call your special odin.exe, basically. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. N- yeah. Not even just that. It'd just be literally that f- program. You could do odin run and then your program. That would be your build system. That would be your front new front end, everything. Huh. Okay. Because it's... So that's my idea. The thing is that you you just literally call one program, which is your pretty much your, your, like your make file or batch file. But it is odin. It's just in odin. Right. You can deal with everything in it. Write it as if you're writing any other odin code and be done. Yeah. And yes, it's a two-stage approach, um, but the two-stage solves a few issues like de- uh, determinancy as well. Yes. Um, for instance, I, you kind of want your compiler to be determinant, uh, determinant because you don't want it non-deterministic because then you get into sort of issues. And this is where, uh, speaking personally, and this, I might be wrong, but I think the way that JI does it is probably non-deterministic. Hmm. Okay. And that's not that doesn't play well to me for a compiler. When to me, I think it should be same input gets the same output, and it goes a little bit different. And it, it should it hmm. is non-deterministic because of how multi-threaded everything is. But that's it. Interesting. Again, yeah. 
that's the way I want to do it, because if you want, if you seriously want to have the controls of this, you're pretty much writing your own little dialects of different languages. And right. yes, that can be very annoying to many people, <laughs> but um, usually you want... But the thing is, the third-party libraries will not usually be metaprogrammed at all. Right. So it's usually not the issue in that case. Your program, yes, maybe a dialogue, but your program has libraries in it, your packages. Right. And they all use and they use them. So it, it's, I, again, I'd have to actually completely experiment with this. I do not think this is probably going to be an issue in, in reality. Okay. Yeah. I can see the issues hypothetically, but I, practically probably not. Again, touch wood. I have no idea. <laughs> um, I can find out. That's why I'm a scientist. I try and find the evidence. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's. But that's kind of the, my way of programming in my the, my idea. So again. Yeah. I'm not against metaprogramming. I actually absolutely love the damn thing. Yeah. It's like one of the reasons I put a parser in Odin very early on in the core libraries went, yeah, I needed a parser. Right. Um, but I didn't make the front end because I wanted to make sure the language was about done first before I even started writing any of that. Right. That's but pretty that's interesting. It. Now, yeah, that's kind of how I was talking about it. And also, I never actually needed the comp full uh, front end yet. I just needed a parser. That was literally it. Yeah, so, I, I think I've done... Most most of all the metaprogramming I've done, and maybe this is just my experience or my yeah. lack thereof, but um, I feel like I've I've maybe needed some pieces of a front end, but largely it's just getting the parse tree. Um, maybe with some, yeah. uh, for example, identifier resolution, like doing actual lookups into a symbol table, or um, yeah, so you can kind of have a convenient link in the in the AST when you want to like go look at a type that something is referring to for example, but um, yeah, that seems where most of the power is. I don't know. I could be totally wrong there, but uh, that's that's kind of been no, my No, there is some more because you can uh, make a program to introspect a data type, figure out all the memory layout and everything. Oh, and true. And pretty much generate another data type that does something else. Yeah, that's like a good point. You can create so many random do things. You can even say, okay, all these variable, all these data types that tagged, well, add them to a data structure, but only add the ones that have these fields. And you can go or it has these data types and you can only know the types if you've checked it properly. Right. So it, there are a hell of a lot more you can do with a full-on metaprogramming. Hmm. But it's yeah. one of these issues, again, with my views of metaprogramming is metaprogramming is a... It's the best way of putting it. It's like holding a bucket of thermite and the bucket's made out of plastic. It's extremely powerful, but you're <laughs> probably going to burn yourself. And most people will. Right. Um, so I'm not a big fan in that... In that regard, I know I'm not a big fan of Lisp. It's kind of metaprogramming all the languages, really, because hmm, yeah, I think to me, I'm 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 quite. I think it's crazy. Sometimes it's a bit like <laughs> I just want basic tools that do the job. I don't need all these meta right. tools that so I can create all the other tools with my tools. And it's like, <laughs> dude, I heard you like tools. You want tools in your tools? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's just me again. Um, yeah. And so your answer to the library, like any any third-party libraries that would want to do any metaprogramming, basically the idea within Odin is saying, okay, well, you know, a library can do some metaprogramming, but the user is going to determine when and where that happens. So they could have it inside maybe, of like yeah, their own metaprogram or something. Was, but, but maybe for me, I think libraries are usually, it should be kind of like, not, not simple, but they should be well-defined. Yeah, that's um, true. So... And in that regards, is that if they're very, very generic, they do all these stuff. It's like, 
is that really what you want? Maybe you have libraries which are for your metaprogrammer, and then they're very, in that regards, very generic. But, like, the non-metacode, again, I may be wrong. And maybe say, no, exactly, there's a proof here, and look, look, this is how good it is. I'm like, okay, great, show me <laughs> hand. But, like, again, I'm really like, I want to see the evidence. That's kind of like, I haven't seen it yet. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. Um, mm. So, uh, for some of the things, because I'm thinking of metaprogramming things that I've used, like, things that I've used metaprogramming for in the past somewhat correspond, like, there's this line between runtime and compile time that we can sort of move around. Um, so you brought yes. up UI, for example, to modify a structure. Yeah. Uh, with runtime type information as an example. But I, I've always used that as a compile time example for metaprogramming, like a good example of why it's of why you kind mm. of want to be able to loop over structure members or something like that. Um, I don't know. what what what. How do you determine where to draw that line? Like when, when does something become a part of the runtime versus compile time? It's a hard um, thing to say. There's no clearly hard, distinct thing. Um, yeah. A lot of the time... I'll give a concrete example. Um, so, for instance, if you're making a serializer um, for, a, like, a big project or something, which I've had to re- recently write in Odin anyway, yeah. um, I actually did that all in runtime. I didn't make any meta. Pro- I was originally going to write a metaprogrammer hmm. to generate all the data structures, all the things that are all properly serialized and be done that way, and I was going to just write it out. And then I thought, wait a minute. One, it doesn't need to be that fast. Hmm. And actually, it turned out it was stupidly fast anyway. And even with the metapro, uh, not with the runtime stuff. Okay. And two, um, I kind of want other people not just be. It needs to be simple enough. And or, and thirdly, I just wanted plain old functions. I didn't need it to be as generic as anything. I know what the problem is. It's well defined. Done. Right. Um, so I took advantage of Odin's type system, like unions and um, like the switch statements and such. Like unions are discriminated unions and Odin. Um, yeah. And it kind of worked out well with the runtime information. Like, I went, okay, um, is if this is a structure, struct, okay, get all of its fields, set the parameters, and then store them as individual fields in the serialization code. Right. Um, and do whatever it needs to do. Like, oh, this is a, an integer, store as an int, it's a string, ah, got to pass, they got to store the memory and then the length and then put an offset to where the memory is stored in the file. Yeah. And do it like that way. But a, a big project was less than a millisecond, for, and it was like, if I did it the metaprogramming way, it'd probably just be as fast. Yeah. So it was, it was. So it's more of like, yeah, I understand why people want the metaprogramming because you get extra compile time checks. But it's also, it was also more. I needed to be very kind of generic at work at the same time. It was again. It's a, I I, I don't have a hard distinction sometimes. People, only people saying yes. Right. I want everything in the compile time to be proved and it works and everything's prove provable. Yeah. But. I don't know. I'm probably just used to seeing using Void Star everywhere. To random <laughs> crap. Maybe it's just that. Yeah. I'm used, just used to it, and I'm not, I need to get out of these bad habits. But I also, <laughs> the other issue is you've got compile times to worry about as well. As soon as you start doing more at compile time, it takes longer. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was going to bring up an ex- uh, like kind of like a sub example of a form of metaprogramming maybe in, in Obin, or Odin, sorry, uh, which is mm. the, uh, what's the polymorphic procedures, I think is what people call them. Yes. And that's kind yeah. of a form, but there's this interesting trade-off of like how big, how much code do we actually want to generate? Um, how much are we bloating the executable? How much compile time do we have? Yeah. Um, so. so I was having a good discussion with someone the other day about this. And okay. Their view was pretty much... 
they do not care about the bloating of an executable. They'd rather just have loads of copies of the same procedure, even if they're generic, because yeah. you've got more tight checking. And I was thinking, I kind of understand what you're talking about, where, yes, it doesn't, the size of executable is not an issue on many platforms, but some platforms it really does matter. And sometimes it's like, mm. why does it really need to have that many different copies of the same code? You're going to increase your compile yeah. times by a lot just because... If you're duplicating code and ASTs all the time, you're inherently just increasing the amount of code you've got to deal with and right. that code you've got to turn and lower into the actual machine code. Yeah. So it's going to increase it. It may not be my much, but it could be by a hell of a lot. Yeah. And especially if you're using LLVM as a backend, like Odin is. <laughs> LLVM, let's just put it this way, is not the fastest thing in the world, even for <laughs> the, the dumbest things in the world. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um yeah, you, I, so I, I hear bad things about building LLVM. Uh, I, I'm assuming yes. you had to go through that. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to answer, it takes a long while. <laughs> it's gotten better a bit. Actually, it has gotten better, which is surprising for an open source project. Yeah, yeah, it's that's better. That's you, kind you of surprising. That. Yeah, and it's, and it stayed on Windows has gotten better over the years as well. So, yeah. One of the things when I started Odin is, I made sure that I worked on it on Windows first because okay. if I knew I got it working on Windows, I can get it working on Mac and Linux and whatever quite easily because to be honest with you, they're saying the platforms for, okay. for LLVM, for LLVM. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, because LL, because they're all, when I say saying it's the wrong word, it's, it's the wrong word. Um, they're all very similar to each other. They all have the same kind of um, compilers and stuff. Yeah. But Windows, like Visual Studio is quite a bit different. Yes. So if you know you can get it working on Visual Studio, in my experience, then it's usually quite easy to get it working on, like, say, Clang or GCC or whatever the compiler is. Right. Um, so in that regard. But so one issue I had was I was trying to get... This is when I first started Odin, which was nearly about four years ago. Wow, it's that long ago. Wow. Um, yeah, four years ago in July it'll be. Um, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. And... One thing I tried to do was I was trying to get LLVM because originally when I did the first prototype, this is before I even released anything to the public, I just outputted C because um, it was right. quick and dirty. It worked. Yeah. Um, and I thought, no, I need to get a proper backend. And I thought to myself, should I just make my own backend? It was early in the days when I could have done that easily, no issue. Mm -hmm. Or do I just go for a proper one, like one of those professional ones out there, like LLVM. I know the Clang clearly, this Clang is LLVM and stuff. Like, oh, great, let's use that. Yeah. And also it will give me a properly optimized backend as well. I don't have to worry about making my own optimized backend. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll go and use that. So I tried to get using it. It looked okay at the time. But the problem was I was trying to use their um, like API uh, to build into the thing. And I could just could not get it to work on Windows at okay. all. Okay, <laughs> all right. So the way I found around it is I literally made a generator to generate the textual form of their like intermediate representation language. Oh, wow, okay. And I literally outputted that, passed it to the binaries, the and it's still, it's still the main way Odin does it, by the way. Okay. For, um, output to these binaries, which then convert to the, the LLVM's bit code, which then gets converted into the mach machine code. Right. And it does goes to this process. It's not so. I actually have to have these external libraries. For the past see. two or three months, I've been working on this new uh, integration. It's mostly working now. Um, in fact, it's in the master. It's just you ha it's an opt-in to use it. So the built-in LPI is now working. So all you need now is a technically theoretically all you need is just a linker. Okay. Um, yeah. So you don't need these extra binaries, even though I can pack it up with everything for everyone. Right. Um, so everything should be a hell of a lot simpler. 
and it means I have a lot more control over things as well with LLVM. But again, for the longest time, Windows, I seriously couldn't do it because they treated Windows as a second class citizen. Right. Um, yeah. So it was then. Well, why is like? Why would you want to use this on Windows? No one programs on Windows. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah. It, it is one of those things. Of most open source projects, which are very Linux based or Mac based originally, or whatever BSD or whatever. Yeah. They really don't care about Windows, not at all. Yeah, and it's it's a little interesting because Odin has a lot of, uh, I guess, game developer kind of people just because of its I, uh, historical reasons I would guess mostly because of Handmade yeah, Hero yeah. and everything um, and that's like primarily Windows um, like I don't yeah exactly most people ship to, I mean the vast majority of PC users are on Windows so. the thing is is that most of the open source projects are Linux because Linux is open source and all that. Yeah. so all the open source people are very uh, Linuxy people. Um, yeah, I can't. Uh, I was going to use another word, but I won't say that because I'll offend the people. <laughs> right. um, but okay. <laughs> the short answer is, yeah, it's usually those sort of type types. Um, okay. Yeah. Again, Linux is fine for certain use cases, of course, and Linux is clearly one out in the world in like phones and servers and all that lot. Just not the desktop. Yep. Yeah. And for many good reasons, <laughs> Linux desktop is awful. Um, things do yeah. not work. Like I, they just you. you one of the things I still, well, I would say this a few years ago on Windows and Mac. Windows, you can still use executables that are like 20, 30 years old and it will just work. Yep. Yeah. On Mac, uh, older things may not work, but usually getting things to work is dead simple. Um, yeah. Like you, usually, it used to be, not, it's getting a bit worse nowadays actually, but mm. it used to be very simple, just things just worked. Linux. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, most people, and most people say, "Yeah, but it works for me." And I'm like, "Great, I've been trying for ages. It doesn't work for me." Right. And it's like, it's like, so you're just doing it wrong. And I'm like, "No, I've been using Linux for many, many years." U- user error. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and it's oh, sorry. I won't again. Not want to go on a rant. Just go on the topic. But yeah, it's right, right. It's yeah. these sort of things. So I've many people who know me on the Discord or whatever other. Uh, social media with guard cellovm they know my hatred of it um <laughs> yeah and they know my issues like oh the speed is slow there's actual bugs in it and bugs that they won't fix yes there's, uh, there's issues like design choices which are again they won't fix because again so many things expand on it lvm is very c oriented and c plus plus oriented so it has a lot of their quirks right. so if you want to do anything slightly off from it uh nope um so it's 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 been annoyance, and it has. I have been wanting to write a custom uh, backend, but it is it would be a full time thing. And only is my part. This is literally just a hobby, technically to me. Yeah, and it has come well far for well. Like I only work on it a few hours a week, um, because I have a full time job. I have other things I do, and it's like right. Yeah, I, I can't work on Odin one hundred percent of the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you have any do you have any plans to move to full-time Odin? I'm curious. Uh full-time Odin probably not. Okay. Yeah, again, it's still yeah. again other jobs and right. Odin will probably never itself Odin on itself will never get paid that much. Yeah. Uh, unless someone says, "Yeah, here you go. Here's loads of money. I'll throw money at you and just work on it." I'm like, "Maybe." maybe. <laughs> um but again, I won't give up my day job yeah. at the moment for it. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it sounds like you're doing some pretty interesting physics work as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, there's too many valuable things to yes. for, for for the day, I guess. 
Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Again, you have to decide what you choose. Time right. is scarce. Your <laughs> sanity is scarce. Everything. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's how you have to decide it all at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I was uh, curious about is, uh, you know, within within Handmade Network, we're all about sort of critically examining barriers and, and abstractions and everything. Yes. Um, and one thing that I was thinking about recently is the division between, for example, a compiler and a debugger, or um, as you know, I've been thinking about the yes. division between yeah, yeah, yeah. compiler and editor and all these things. I'm curious to know, like, do you do you agree with the um, with the existing division, which I think is uh, I don't know where exactly it comes from. Maybe like the sort of Unix philosophy, where uh, you have these little tools like a compiler and then a debugger is a completely separate thing. I'm curious if like within Odin you've thought about. I can see what you're talking about. Yeah. Because I've been keeping up with your project, at least. Um, your little um, text editor, which is not a text editor, it's, it's a complete AST editor. Yes. And it's pretty, it is absolutely wonderful. It's, oh, it's lovely thanks. to see what's going on. It's like, it's great. It's been great to see, it really Th- is. Thanks. And yeah. it's like, great, someone's doing something that's really cool and actually is pretty good. And you're just <laughs> trying to blend the idea of a language with the editor. Now, there are issues with that, of course. Is yes. that Again, as you were stating, mm-hmm. these different things like the editor, the IDE, the debugger, the compiler, the language, they've all been separate things. Yes. And it's because, in many regards, they are separate. Like, okay, mm-hmm. compiler is just a language. It takes in files. They're separate things. Right. And you have an editor to make those files. Oh, that's a separate thing. Then you have something to debug it. That's a separate thing. Now, many people try and merge the editor and debugger. So you have, like, an IDE. Yes. Um, but, again, the language is still separate. Sometimes the language does get merged into the editor. Um, like, for instance, Swift nowadays on Mac they're trying to merge it so you can actually get interactive code and you can do all the stuff and you see what's going on and they're kind of merging the stuff together. Oh, like into... I, I don't... I don't actually know. I didn't know about it's that. kind is of that like, like a semi-interactive thing. It's like a semi-interactive thing, yeah. Is that all in like Xcode, I, I would guess? Uh, yeah, it'll be all in Xcode, yeah. Gotcha. So okay. it's... Again, different languages like that and it's... Yeah. Again, if you used, for instance, like Mathematica, in fact, you write a formula, it pops up, you see a thing and you just have it... it actual representation of your code is all in one and you can you can pretty much print out the thing so if you use Mathematica or Jupyter in Python or whatever the other things yeah, are yeah yeah um, the but so yes there are these divisions and I'm not against them being divided or even blurred hmm. yeah. it is very difficult like there are issues with merging the editor with the language hmm. and yeah. the biggest issue is you've got to use the like editor and the language like you yeah. can't separate them and that may sound like what do you mean it's like that's not a problem it's like well that means that's the best way of putting it is like yeah people there's already all this tooling around text editors like actual text there's right. no tooling around this new thing and yeah. you're now not separating the language from the editor and they're all very intermediate and it may be a very good thing it may not be like Again, I'm not saying it's a good thing or bad. It, it is right. highly situational, highly problem specific. Yes, yeah. the The interesting thing about um, I've I've done a lot of thinking about the kind of uh, momentum argument, I guess, which is that you know we have so much inertia behind text. We have tooling for text, version mm. control, obviously debuggers, all these things. Um, and for for me, I've always been thinking recently that um. If if it's true that something else is better, then we need there 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 is at some point where when we would want to switch to that thing, 
And the longer we wait, the more inertia there will be. Um, like the more and more code that will be written um, textually. So if we ever wanted to get off of it, earlier is better than later. Um, I, I think... What are your thoughts on that? So to be clear here, um, like for instance, your little editor, which is the thing, is yeah. text still exists. Yes. Yeah. It's just... You're kind of doing an abstraction above, like, okay, actually, what does the text represent? Well, it actually represents this tree data right. structure. Yes. So now we'll just edit the t tree data structure. We may still call it as text in there, but you're just editing t tree data structure. Yeah. And in my opinion, like, that's actually a fine level to have. Hmm. Because, okay. I, and this, this inertia thing, yes, we've done things away, but usually the things that kept inertia usually, usually means they work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, I can think of a great example, is Orange Programming. It doesn't work. It was proven not to be good. But people continually use it because it's yeah. the illusion that, oh, this seems like a great idea. Yeah. Of course, it, it keep and it, and it does, on the surface, sound like a great idea. Like, I clearly, I, at one time, like I completely went, bought into it, believed it, and tried to do everything that way. Yes. And then one day, I literally just went, wait, why am I writing code this way? And I'm like <laughs> writing like 10 times amount of code for no reason. And it's all more complicated to handle than just doing this. Yeah. But it was more like I was kind of trusting the wisdom of other programmers because I had none. And I was looking for wisdom. Yes. And I thought, oh, there's where the source is. And I'm going to trust these other people because rationally, I have no other information. It's rational to do so. And it is. Right. But... When there isn't, when this is false wisdom, and it's just this thing that keeps getting passed around, and it sounds right, but it isn't right in practice. Yeah. Like there's no evidence to back it up. Then, actually, then yeah, it's false, and you kind of have to look elsewhere for the wisdom. So again, it's yeah. these. But if you again, it's this idea: is is this a false wisdom or is it a real wisdom? And you have to be careful of saying, okay, let's get scrap it. This seems like a better idea, and say, yeah. wait, this is proven itself. There is a reason why it's proven itself. It must be good. So be careful about going over that to next radical thing. Interesting. But yeah. if you can show the <clears> radical <throat> thing is really good, then yeah, great. It needs to be proven. Right. That's the thing. And it's this balance between, yeah, there's wisdom in the ages, but then there's also, yeah, like, actually, this is probably better than that. And this is like you've invented the wheel and everyone was using logs before. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of that thing. Using be oh yeah, they've got the bearing with a log, but no, we've got a wheel now, which actually means it's better. But again, it's this you don't know until you've designed it. Yes. And again, I love seeing all the stuff that's come out of how I made um, the network skin. Like full code is great for editor. If again, for people who don't know, I bet most people would if you listen to this, full code is an absolutely great replacement for Emacs. Yes. So please check it out. Again, your little um, experiment that you're kind of doing this little project mm -hmm. it seems like a great idea because you're designing the language alongside the editor yes which also means and like people haven't seen you actually be able to right here's like the editor you can add stuff in and then you get a flip of a switch go oh change the syntax to look like a different language yes and it's like wait what <laughs> but the thing is the data structure like the tree data is actually the same yes but it's being represented differently so this means that you can actually have oh change the formatting done and but uh, for the user, that means they can never get the formatting wrong because it was you never actually type the data in. Yes. So and like that. Um, but again, it's it's that kind of thing. Your editor will have to be used by a keyboard because keyboard input is much faster than a mouse. Clearly, but yes. um, you've got I've got ten fingers or four ten fingers and two thumbs. But yeah, compared to a mouse, <laughs> there's only one input. Yes. And um, 
so that's why text writing text is a lot good and we're used to writing text throughout life but if you can do that write text and it has this extra structure then it's going to be wonderful to use again yeah. i'd love to see this working with other languages not just your custom one see how far you could get yeah it'd be amazing yeah there's there's an interesting i don't know there's there's a lot of unanswered questions right now i i, I was curious mm -hmm. to know if you um like i was thinking more of i guess another way of asking the question is um do you see yourself similarly reevaluating those barriers within Odin? Like, for example, outputting debug information in, in a oh, new way. Oh, of course. Way. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you've also got to, like, for instance, debug information. I have to deal with how most debuggers work. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's like, I can actually create a program which debugs my own program. In right. my program, of course, like part of the program, like, like a little, little library. Yeah. Which is better than any debugger out there. Yes. And it's not that actually that difficult to write. It's just surprising that no one usually does it. Yeah. And it's like, again, the basic example is, oh, I have a value. I want to represent it in the graph user event phase. Click it. Oh, it's complete, completely rendered, done, everything. I can modify the data, see the data, visualize it, put up as a plot, do whatever I need to do. Right. But this is a normal debugger. I can't think of any debugger that does that. Yeah. Seriously, like, okay, yeah. give me these vouchers. Oh, there's an array in here. Okay, give me the range of this. Okay, now plot that on a graph. Give me the different uh, means and averages. Again, this is not difficult if you've already got like a like a user interface library already done, and it's yeah. like dumb. And it's like, okay, explain that. Also, okay, I can manually track this pointer in my own little debugger menu and stuff like this, and track where how it's what it's going and who's accessing and everything. Like, you can do a hell of a lot more than a normal debugger can. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like you just need to show it to people. Like, look how simple it is. It's like, oh, I never thought of that. And it's not <laughs> like people being dumb. It it isn't like sometimes you don't know it until you've been shown it. Right. Like you don't have the language for it. Yeah. Like why would you come to this idea if you've never actually had it? You not have this revelation going. Oh, oh, look at this. How's how you do it? <laughs> but like, it's yeah. like, for me, I've had these revelations. Like, but some people told me like, oh, like, oh I never thought of it that way. Like, oh makes perfect sense now thank you right and it's like you learn these things as you go along clearly but it's this i don't know what's the best way of putting it but um yeah it's there's a lot of things even with the current tool set we have people aren't taking advantage of is what i'm trying to say yeah i'm curious if um do you do any specific stuff right now within Odin that, for example, allows people to take advantage of this in a more substantial way? I guess like debugging specific, maybe new formats of debugging information that somebody could use. Um, because I know um, that existing like PDB, for, like the PDB format, for example, if you want to use yeah, yeah. Uh, a Windows debugger, is like, um, it seems... I'm not well-versed in it, but it seems crazy, and it seems... Uh... Again, a lot of it's just legacy reasons. Yes. But it's, yeah. it's, it's also based around a certain memory model and a certain like programming model and mm. how things work. Yeah. So like if you ever use Visual Studio, it kind of says, what's the language you're using? And it will kind of just try and understand, okay, these... It's got certain ideas about how certain languages work, mm, and yeah. they're all they're all very C-like at the end of the day, and it tries to make them make them all C-like. Mm. And if you go further or off from that, oh, good luck with that. Yeah, it, it does assume that okay, every single instruction's got a position, like um, uh, whatever, and then you can go down as you go along, and it goes instructions as you iterate. So you've got some like source code location associated with some instruction. Um, right. And then you've got these values which you can check to see, and they've got their own associated scopes within this like functional pro procedure or whatever. Yes. It's this basic idea 
again, not a bad model at all. That's kind of how you think. But there's a lot more to it. And but the thing is that eBogger doesn't cannot cannot really know it. Yeah. So it's this is the curse of being very generic. And this is one of the reasons why I like don't like generics in programming, like like generic like programming. Like once you go very generic, you lose the specific, like the actual thing you're trying to do. Right. Yeah. And if it's like if you go too specific, it becomes very ad hoc. And that means you can't generalize it. Yes. So it's this balance you've got to think about it. again there's no real again you must do it this way clearly because different things with different work it's like again it's probably i'm just repeating myself in this in little thing but yeah yeah that, that 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 makes sense to me um it's mm. it's interesting because uh uh like you were talking about the tool that i've been working on and the thing that mm. i was thinking is valuable there is is giving access to the abstract syntax tree to other things that need it. But Odin also supports yes. this in a way because you can just parse your code uh, without yeah. any extra legwork. And um, But again, this 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 idea isn't actually that complicated. Theoretically, right, yeah. you could have this in C. Yes. Like you could have, if you had a C compiler in C, written in C, yes. that was well, well designed for this purpose, it could actually be easily read. It's not just a random thing or just or it's just a library just for a compiler yes you could theoretize this in any language literally any language it's just interesting i haven't seen it yes yeah being used and it's like this is quite an obvious idea yeah uh, and like i build these i build metaprogram tools regularly even for my main main job like i made a tool that wrote in python because we do a lot of python stuff for like mathematics and such yes and it's very easy to make prototypes in python and like it, just for the general things, you don't like. Okay, here's write it in math. It's pretty much like write down the maths. It's done. Yes. And then if you need to optimize it in C or C plus plus, whatever you need to do, then you can actually map it and do it correctly. Right. But um, one thing I did is I thought, okay, I need a quick thing. It doesn't need to take long. I just make a metaprogrammer that reads a C file. So I've got a C parser in Python. They mm. already exist. C99 parser. Um, read the C file. Um, analyzed the data, generated all my new data structures. Um, the, the C ones, I also generated the Python data structures, which would interface with the C library hmm. and all of the different wrappers for it and everything. Yes. It didn't take long at all. But I just I literally had a, literally, I imported the parser for right. the language. Yeah. And then dealt with it. Yes. It's, it's, but it was such a simple thing to do. Yeah. But again, I very rarely see people do this. I don't mean it's like, again, it's like showing people, yeah, these are the t- you can do this in already the tools that we have. Right. It's it's pretty interesting because I think a lot of that comes from the handmade ideas there, which is basically that if you mm. understand your tools, you can understand how they work. Mm. Um, like, for example, if, if you didn't know how a compiler kind of worked at a high level, you would never know about yeah. an abstract syntax tree. So you would never know no, to even think about using it. Which is where a lot of the issues with programming, like I am self-taught, yeah like programming like my background is not in computer science or programming or anything like technically yes and my education i mean not background education but i have taught myself and i've taught different things as i go along and if we are going to teach it we kind of do need to teach it well it's just the way that we're teaching at the moment is computer science from what i understand it and seen some people do it's very mathematical it's not at all practical it's very abstract very theoretical Yes. Like here's the algorithms. These how these they scale and everything. This is what you do, 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 do. But yes. that doesn't actually. Most people out that probably can't program very well. Right. Um, it's not like you're teaching mathematics when really 
many people expecting to be taught engineering in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a weird conflation going on with computer science. Yes. I don't think computer science is a science whatsoever. Oh, yeah. In, 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 in like, it, it's not a science in like the natural sense. Yes. Words, like natural science, like physics or chemistry or biology. Right. It's a formal science like mathematics. It is a form of mathematics at the end of the day. Yeah. Just applied to logic and computers. Yes. It's, so again, it's just how we teach and it's just how I don't think these this wisdom is being taught at all. At all. And it's clearly been showing like people just, as I call them, flash fads. People <laughs> pick up the next fad. Yeah. Hoping it has wisdom in it. Yeah. Find out everyone else copies it because they all everyone copies like, oh, that's idea. I'll just copy my friends. It's a, again, rational thing to do usually if you don't know what you're doing. Um, right. But then it's like, okay, well, then someone says, oh, actually, there's an issue with this fad. Okay, we'll go to the next one. Like, object oriented programming. Those people think, oh, right, realize the object oriented crowd. It's right, let's go to the functional programming fad now. Right. It's like <laughs> you've just swapped one fad for another and you've not even realized, mm, maybe it's not good enough for your problem. Right. Like, I remember seeing a few years ago people moving to Haskell and then realized after about a year of using it, went, actually, this is not the right tool for our job. I don't know why we started it. It seemed like great promises. And I'm like, but you just jumped into it willy-nilly. Right, yeah. Or, again, with the Rust stuff, it's like, because uh, Mike main Chris with Rust, Yeah. I don't think they've jumped into a certain way of being safe. And to be honest with you, I think it only solves one form of safety, yeah. which maybe may not even be the main majority. But they went full down that line and went charged right into it, and people think, oh, great, I'm doing full on the Balmag and everything. And I'm like, I don't even know if this is proven yet. Right. Like it, and also, by the looks of it, it does look like it only solves one form of memory safety. Yeah. In in a way, it seems that for certain problems, it seems that it doesn't even necessarily solve it. It just pushes the problem around a little bit. Yeah, so it pushes maybe, elsewhere, yeah. Yeah, like you might not crash, uh, but you might have invalid data, and that might be a lot harder to debug. I understand the, Id- the idea that you want to prove something at compile time. Right. I, I understand that idea. Like, yeah. you understand the idea. You want to prove that your program is correct. Yes. You, pro- you can't prove if your algorithms are correct. Right, you yeah. You just prove that they're implemented and there's no, like, thing wrong. I completely don't agree with that. But then there is this cost of like okay this is built to language that's a huge compile time cost it'd be time or complexity or whatever right but you can't there's not this opt-in option which you could do with metaprogramming theoretically you could have an opt-in check your analyze your code and it would the metaprogram would analyze it which is what a lot of people love static analyzers for yes effectively that's what they are they're metaprograms but very specific things right they're not very general um but again, it's this thing. I'm like, I'm not a big fan of Rust, and I also think I think it's gone into the realm of like C plus plus craziness, like the amount of stuff <laughs> they keep adding to it, and okay. and it's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. But that again, I can criticize Rust all night if I wanted to, and there are good things about it, but I wouldn't use it myself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think if people want to know what the um, motto of today thing is, show me the hard evidence. Right. <laughs> Your thing that's proven it. That's this is the general thing, and the other thing is like, well, compared to what. And um, yes, I'm trying to think of another one. And um, what's your trade-offs? At what cost is it going to be? Like that's kind of how I think. It's a very empiricist way of thinking things. But yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, hand handmade uh, stuff is always <laughs> sort of concerned with trade-offs. It's um, yeah, exactly. There's no there's no better answer necessarily. It's just what your priorities are and how those map to the yeah solutions. Which like is, there is maybe a, a perfect answer for this problem. Yeah. But you may not know it. Right. Well, if you do know it, it may be take, oh, this is going to take forever, so I need to make a compromise here and there. Yes. That is not an excuse for bodging things. 
Yeah. Um, um, if make sure people yeah, the board just like do it quickly, crappily, but it works like duct tape it together. Right. <laughs> but sometimes maybe that is the case. You do need to bodge. Yeah. But if you bodge all the time, that's not really going to help you down the line. And then right. you've got to deal with it. You've got to maintain the bodges. And it's like, oh, I can't remove that duct tape because it's holding that thing up. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I've seen that in real work code okay. numerous times. Yeah. It's just people bodging, adding things together. Be not ad hoc would put it nicely. It's Right. But that's real code. Like people, sometimes you don't know where it is. So you add a new thing, you add a new thing, and it just metastates and becomes kind of like a tumour. Not in a bad sense, but it just is, because tumours aren't necessarily bad, like, or they usually benign, but it's just like it grows and grows, and it's like you haven't cooled it down to, okay, now actually this is what we know what it is now, and we can solve that problem. Yes. But a lot yeah. of projects just, just keep adding things on, and this is what a lot, again, handmade thing is like software sucks, because <laughs> they just keep adding things on, and don't forget about actually what is this thing meant to be used for. Yes. It's like now with web browsers, I'm looking at one right now. Um, yeah. Again, Discord, which we're using the for, I think is technically a web browser. Yep. Yeah. Um, the web is theoretically impossible to implement now by anyone else. Yeah. When you think about it, only the current oh, yeah. web browsers out there could implement it. Yeah. If they even do. <laughs> and they often do differently between yeah. the browsers, and it's like this huge painful thing for, I guess, front end web people. Oh, yeah, but it's like the. The web is insane because they've yeah. added more and more stuff on the top. Yeah. They've never got rid of anything. Yeah. And they've never had different versions. They've just had like, okay, it's one giant thing. Everything should work together. And it's like, they've just added loads of more crap on top without fixing the underlying problems. Yes. it's. But I, I understand the problems. It's just like the foundations are crap. Yeah. But you can't fix that without changing, going to something completely radical and yeah. get away from like HTTP and HTML and CSS and, oh God, CSS. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But that, that, there's there's your problems. It's like, if, unfortunately, it's like hard problems are hard again. I say that again. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess if we were to to list the takeaways um, from from today, uh, we have uh, hard problems are hard. Uh, yep. You don't. You do not like C plus plus. Um, yep, that's true. Simple tools are good, and yeah. uh, those are the big three things that come to mind. But yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like there's a... Another one is, for me, is show me it works. Right, yes, evidence. And prove it to me it works. Evidence, I like evidence. Yes. And, and that's kind of usually, like, for me, it's like, okay, show me it works and show me the evidence that this is good. Yes. Whatever you mean by good. Um, yeah, well, all, all very good, all very good points. Um, but, but yeah, uh, we're coming up to, like, an hour and a half, so um, I think yes. this is good time to sort of wrap this up but um yes it is thank you yeah thank you very much for coming on uh it's been a thank you for real, having me on yeah it's been a real pleasure uh having you on the show and um uh yeah for anybody who's interested go check out bill's language at uh i'm assuming odinling.org yes that is correct oh perfect all right i got it right so odinling.org Odinling. yes or certain your favorite search engine just odin language and it will just probably the first one there perfect awesome well thank you so much again bill uh it's been it's been great and i hope you have a wonderful rest of your night since i think it's probably past midnight yes. there so <laughs> it is yes yeah that's um, fine so have have a have a wonderful rest of your uh almost complete lockdown um for this yes. for this covid19 thing and uh, uh yeah, yeah have a great night and yourself thank you very much 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.